Hello, time travelers. Tony Witt here. Just a few things to clarify before you start listening to this live recorded podcast from Chicago TARDIS. Um, I apparently made a mistake last podcast and attributed several stories by Mark Gatiss to Paul Cordell. And I apologize for that. Thank you, Trey, for catching that. Obviously, I was having a senior moment. The other thing is that in our ongoing battle to try to make our audio quality the best that it can be, we somehow overmiked Allison this time, who usually gets undermiked. So if it sounds like Allison is a bit louder than usual, she is her regular volume. It's just, uh, <laughs> yeah, she's got a mic straight in her face and. Dalton and I, for some reason, decided to sit back and enjoy the recording. So I am in the midst of editing it right now and doing my best. Hopefully the end product will be worth your listen. Let us know. Otherwise, enjoy what you're about to hear. Hello. I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them, or even collect the hardcover editions, or maybe the Pinnacle American editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hi there, this is Richard Franklin. And I play Captain Mike Yates on Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. This this happens every time, folks. This is how we always... How the sausage is made. Yes. I mean, sorry, the magic. Well, (laughs) six of one, half dozen of another. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the tripartite task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. Boy, I couldn't pronounce novelization there for a moment. Tripartite because it's three doctors. My name is Tony Witt and today we are speaking to you from the best Doctor Who convention in the Midwest, Chicago TARDIS. Oh my god, did that audio spike. That's going to be fun to edit. Anyway, you you heard that, I'm sure. You'll also be hearing lots of crunching of chips. So don't worry Crisps. about that. Don't worry about that. Everything's perfectly fine. Uh, this time, we have our usual tripartite discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's also our intermediate level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts. And this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. And finally, we have our semi-casual fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time around, it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Hello. And isn't this Dalton's first time at Chicago TARDIS? It, it is. is. Yay! I finally so, made it. Very good. Thank you, thank you. First time. <laughs> We're going to pop your cherry tonight, Virgin. Anyway, as you know, sorry, I, I forgot my fandoms. I'm, I'm thinking about... Uh, Rocky Horror. As you know, this is where we usually talk briefly about our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. This month, we've had a membership drive going on and a giveaway, the results of which we'll be announcing at the end of this podcast. And then after recording, those of you who are here, we will announce who in our live audience will be getting the random shit we have for them tonight. So if you want to join us, depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book, 
Since we know you have so many of those, you have to store them in the antimatter universe. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, who is here in the room. Yes, he Thank you. Hello, Rick. Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, and our rejoined members, the Video Junkyard Podcast. We have also had the Doctor Who Collectors podcast. For some reason, you were not listed in my script, Larry, and I apologize for that. And just today, we had a new patron join us, and that would be Hans Wax. There we go. So we have new patrons, and we'll find out tonight who gets our goodies. Uh, don't take that the wrong way. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can join us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We now continue our discussion with the discussion, because that's how you do discussions. Where the hell is the music? <gasps> oh, no. You had it pulled up earlier. I did. There it is. I got it. I got it. That is it. Sorry. <laughs> All right. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of bloopers in this. I apologize. We continue now with our discussion of the first story of season 10, The Three Doctors. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. The Three Doctors, adapted by Tan Sticks from the script by Bob Baker and Dave Martin, that aired from 1230.72 to 1.28.73, published by Target Books in November 1975. As of this recording in November 2019, this title is currently out of print. It is available as an unabridged audiobook, 127 pages. Now you may have noticed, dear listeners, Mm -hmm. I did not say Doctor Who and the Three Doctors, as the title is actually given on the edition we're most familiar with. On that first edition, it reads more like a book from 1981 onwards and is simply called Doctor Who, The Three Doctors, with no hyphens, colons, or ands. Yes, that's what we consider interesting on this podcast. Also, while there's no internal artwork, the covers are par for the course for this era of Target book for having a great cover painting, along with yet another one around the back corner, much as Day of the Daleks had previously. Later editions would say Doctor Who and the Three Doctors, which causes an unintentional tautology. If the third Doctor (laughs) is one of the Three Doctors, then who is Doctor Who? Mull over that one for a while, won't you? Thank you. Believe it or not, Barry Letts had to mull over the idea of a multi-doctor story, see what I did there, for some time, despite being encouraged by both fans and the higher-ups at the BBC because he found the concept to quote-unquote fanish. Good luck for us he didn't say fanny, and that he hadn't heard the term fanwink yet, oh, because they're both offensive. <laughs> but by 1972, both he and Terrence Dix decided it would be appropriate to do such a story for the 10th anniversary coming up the next year. You may also have noticed that the story did not air anywhere near November 23rd, 1973, and this was because Let's preferred to start each season with a strong hook and leave the end of the season for crap. Like the Time Monster. (laughs) And what better hook than this? From the start, there was trouble putting this one together. First of all, they had to secure promises from Hartnell and Troughton that they'd both be available. Hartnell enthusiastically said yes, while Troughton said he would not be available until November. That meant they'd be recording the story 10th in the recording block just a month before it was due to go out. This was a good thing for scriptwriters Bob Baker and Dave Martin because their initial story ideas weren't gelling yet. Get it? These are definitely Doctor Who fans. (laughs) They know why that's a bad joke. Their original script, Death World, involved the Doctors going into the Federation of Evil's underworld to fight various representations of death to avoid an all-out war with the Time Lords. They would have fought zombies, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, the Hindu goddess Kali, the Cyclops Polyphemus. Not exactly budget-friendly, that script, and it also sounds too much like a D&D campaign. Then they changed the villain's name to Ohm, which of course is who read Upside Down. And he would be the opposite number to the Doctor. Let's reminded them that who is not the Doctor's name, and instead suggested Omega, hence the unusual pronunciation of that name. Oh. Yeah, that's where that comes in. So you're hmm. saying Omega, not Omega. Yes, yes. Good thing I got you before we started. They were also asked to include Jamie McCrimmon in the script, and there would be a romantic subplot between Jamie McCrimmon and Joe. Yeah. (laughs) Just as well that did not get made. Thank God. Quite soon, though, two shoes dropped. One good, one bad. 
Fraser Hines couldn't get away from his filming commitments for Emmerdale Farm. And Lett suggested getting Wendy, Wendy Padbury in, but she also was unavailable. Poor Victoria, no one even thought of her. Mm-hmm. No, not even later. In the end, they gave Benton most of Jamie's action, minus the romance, which is why John Levine gets a bit more to do here than usual. Which was merciful, because I was afraid that was what was coming. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. And then Let's heard from Heather Hartnell. Uh, she called the producer to tell him that Hartnell simply was too ill to participate fully at this point. Not only was he very frail, but he couldn't remember anything due to his advanced arteriosclerosis. The writers then tried to bring him in for the only only for the final confrontation at the end, and you can see hints of that in Dick's final novelization. Even that would be too much for him. In the end, he didn't appear alongside his fellow actors except for publicity shots. Instead, he did pre-filmed inserts with his lines writ large on cue cards for him to read them. This would be his last performance, and he would die two years later on April 23, 1975. The last thing they decided was that now that the ratings were stable for the first time since the 60s, it was time to give the Doctor his freedom of movement back. Uh, spoiler alert, the Doctor gets his freedom of movement back in this story, just in case you didn't know. Good to know. Yeah, isn't it? Because of this, let's cast Clyde Pollitt, who had appeared as one of the Time Lord Triumvirate at the Doctor's trial in the War Games, as the Chancellor, which is why we get the President, oddly enough, saying he was at the trial. Let's intended that to be the same character. The biggest hurdle with this story, however, were the stars. Apparently, Pertwee and Troughton didn't initially get along too terribly well, mainly because they came from two different schools of thought regarding acting. Troughton would do something different on every take, even changing the line from time to time. Pertwee, however, needed the line to be exactly the same because if he got the wrong cue, it would throw him off, and during rehearsal, it was, it was basically the, the second and third doctor. Mm-hmm. So there you go. And if they had added Liam Hartnell to that, they would have had the doctor who couldn't remember his lines at all, and he uh, just looked awful. That would have been. Mm. But they did end up very close friends later, even though they played up the uh, rivalry for conventions to the point that they would give super soakers to each other and uh, (laughs) shoot each other at conventions. I feel like I should insert the obligatory pun of the worst episode ever of whose line is it? Uh, oh, thank you. Thank you for that loud groan. That was not one of your better moments. It, it, it feeds me. That's okay. Well, with that, um, let's have a dramatic, a dramatic... Let's try it again. Let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Well, let's see. Rick, we had you do that last time. Would you be willing to do it for us again? Sure. <laughs> Great. The dramatic reading of the back cover of The Three Doctors. Joe glanced up at the doctor. Things must be pretty serious, then. They are, Joe. Very serious indeed. The whole of the universe is in danger. The most amazing Doctor Who adventure, in which Doctors 1, 2, and 3 cross time and space and come together to fight a ruthlessly dangerous enemy, Omega. Once the Time Lord himself, now exiled to a black hole in space, Omega is seeking a bitter and deadly revenge against the whole universe. Very good. Thank you. Thanks, Rick. All right. So, first impressions. <laughs> this should be interesting. Uh, Allison, what was your first impression when you saw what was coming? I didn't know exactly what was coming other than all three actors, but I also somehow thought that Hartnell had already died before this was filmed. So oh. I thought that he was going to have dialogue that was all old, you know, bits of clipped out film from previous oh God, episodes. Like The Sopranos. If yeah. you say so. I, I didn't say... knows what I'm talking about. Right? I don't know what you're talking about. After Nancy Marshall died, they mm. clipped together scenes mm. of hers digitally and had a scene with that character after she was already dead. Yes, I thought it was Previous going to be something ever. like that, and so it was a relief that no. it was not. I didn't know it was coming, and a lot of times there's a pretty slow buildup in the first 30 pages or so, and then mm. everything happens in the end. And this one, it started happening pretty quickly in a way yeah. that's quite different from the stories we have been reading. Yeah, yeah. It, it does kind of start off with a bang, almost literally if you're talking about Hollis being sucked into the black hole. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got Alien Invasion on, like, page 15. Oh, yeah. So. yeah. Absolutely. Don, how about you? Um, yeah, I'm with Allison. I, I was kind of excited for the, the idea of the three Doctors uh, iterations interacting with each other, um, being kind of different uh, people. You know, we've, we've 
read through all of these, so we've gotten really good kind of ideas of who they were, how they acted, um, and how they would interact was kind of fun. So having the first Doctor not really be part of that was kind of uh, sad to me, mm-hmm. even not knowing that Hartnell was uh, sick. And But I kind of picked up on that whenever he was just on TV screens or on, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, not there with the actual doctors. Um, the blobs just reminded me of Flubber. Um, <laughs> so oh, I wish they looked that good. <laughs> yeah, to, to me, it was like, hmm, this is supposed to be menacing, but okay, it gets there. <laughs> should I should I show them what those blobs look like? I think because... the production values in my head were sort of like early 90s Terminator, Odo, sort of flowy, oh, which I'm sure it was significantly worse than oh, that. Far, yeah, far, far worse. Oh, my God, you have no idea. It had a nice <laughs> sense of uh, what's going on here, though, sort of disorientation. I do not have it up on my desktop, and I made that compilation last night. Oh, well. Well, yeah, they don't look that good. If anything, they look like um, those things that you get at Christmas, those... Um, kind of trees made out of candy like little globules of candy stuck on the outside hmm. maybe out of trees yes uh, they look like that don't they okay. yeah i was imagining like they might have actually been jello molds on set or some oh, other kind I of wish. gelatin they <laughs> didn't have the budget for gelatin <laughs> well the the first jolly is this episode brought to you by nuts what? This episode brought to you by Knox Gelatin. <laughs> oh my God. Thank you. But, um, yeah, it's a CSO thing. That's what they look like. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, well, that's, that's, yeah. That's not very good. No. That's better. Right. And they make a dig dug type sound when they move. A scientific conjuring trick of a very high order. I think the waiting is over. Which is just. Hilarious. They are much more impressive on the screen. The first one is a bad CSO effect. Well, it's a CSO effect. So there we go. It, it's the best they could do at the time, though. So, yeah. And forgive me, I don't know what you mean by the term CSO. Oh, sorry. I thought we color separation. The color separation. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, which Very they good. were doing a lot of once they uh, moved to color with videotape. So, yeah, they could have been a bit better. But as far as the book goes, yeah. You said that it has a fairly fast clip. Yes, in a way that I actually found rather delightful. Towards the end, it kind of slowed to a slog for the last 30 pages or so. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a flip-flop of the usual. But I understood that the the special effects we would be seeing on the screen would probably not be four star by modern standards but after so many hairy monstars we've had and, and, and metal monsters we've had in recent years it, it had to have a sort of a pleasing offbeat weirdness as well sort of sparks and gelatin is not something we have seen before that is no. true um yeah i i kind of want to see how the uh the antimatter universe looks um it um, is a disused quarry okay just like every other alien so it's just very gray this yes okay it's extremely gray it's just dull and boring the i imagine that... something more than that but of course, of course when it was filmed yeah so i actually liked that it was supposed to be in some ways a manifestation of omega am i saying it right omegas Omega. sounds like a, a kid who's trying to say oh my god but doesn't want to get in trouble <laughs> for taking the lord's name in vain right. uh so I like that it was a manifestation of Omega's sort of lack of imagination, lack of an inner life, yes. lack of interest in anything other than his own his own thoughts, and also maybe a bit of a manifestation of his despair and depression yeah. as well. So I actually thought that was a nice twist on the set, is at one point we're told there's a certain area that's ruined, and Omega could easily repair it, and he wasn't even interested and hadn't even tried. Yeah. Well, and they, they make a point, uh, I don't remember which chapter it was in, but they even say that, like, initially he created a world that was of his own making that mm-hmm. was beautiful, but after all yeah. of this time in, you know, being trapped there, he just gave up on making it look pretty. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, I don't care anymore. This is what we got. We got th- gray dunes and gray skies. I and, think that's you know. when Omega is trying to convince the doctor to stay. And he's saying, it doesn't have to look like this, you know, it's a fixer-upper. And he actually kind of spits out a few flowers or something like that. And says, it could look, this could be yours if the price is right. But then it goes back to the grayness. It never quite gets away from that on screen. So that's another way that 
as we said today in our Remembering Terrence Dix panel, um, Terrence Dix is amazing at improving stories that really need the improvement. Actually, here's a line. Uh, the whole place was empty, echoing, unfinished, as though M- Omega had tired of his creation the moment he had th- thought it into existence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sort of like that all those a... McMansions that were never done in mm-hmm. the housing boom. Fair enough. Yeah, they've got that <laughs> same sort of shell effect. It's a little more impressive on screen, believe it or not. <laughs> it doesn't look nearly so... Um, I'm talking about Omega's lair. In fact, it actually looks okay until you get to the singularity. And that's nothing like it is on screen at all. Well, it's nothing like it is on the page at all. Because it all came off as sort of iron gray and bronze emerald city. Ooh. The description, and then the f- the plumes of fire as well. Okay, sounded no castle gray skull is what I'm. Castle <laughs> Well, they didn't have the power of good special effects. That's for damn sure. No. Omega's outfit comes off looking that way. As a matter of fact, I think you all had the uh, PDF that had the cover. Very like, different than the the paperback we have yes. here. Yes, Chris, uh, Chris Achilios did the original cover. And he was specifically inspired by uh, Jack Kirby, mm. and I think it's it's one of the it's one of the issues of Fantastic Four where Galactus is on the cover. Mm-hmm. Oh, I could see yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's exactly what he was doing there. Well, and then yeah, Galactus is. himself there is supposed is. to be inspired by pre-Columbian. Is it Maya, a Mayan god that Galactus is roughly based on? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I can totally see that. And, yeah, precisely. That that outfit is great when it's <laughs> not moving. When it is moving and you've got... Um, like so much formal attire. It's terrific hurting. when you're standing there looking stately, but if you have to actually move around the room... It's and when you've got a rough very going. shouty actor shouting in it. Mm. It's the same actor who played... Um, Gonna blank out on the name of the demon and the demons. As all, that's it. Mm. What do we think of the interaction between the doctors and this? I expected more of a smarmy mutual admiration society. Oh, you're very clever. Oh no, you're clever. You're the cleverest of all. So I actually <laughs> was amused by the bickering sibling, with Hartnell as sort of the the dad setup they came up with. Oh, that's right. You you and I went to see the fiftieth anniversary story together in yes. the theater. So you're more yes. used to that. And yes, yes. Are you boys his companions? They get younger all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it it really is the sort of sniping thing. The the thing that's problematic here, though, is that Dix actually takes out a lot of the humor. Mm. A lot mm. of it's gone. As we said before, Troughton had a tendency to ad-lib, and we didn't like that, but the ad-libs would not have been in the camera script, and I'm betting that Dix uh, didn't, as a script editor, didn't much like having ad-libs at all. I didn't even think about well. that in 1975. He couldn't just pop in a VHS and watch the episode. Yeah. He would, no, he couldn't. It would be he would challenging for him to get a copy and watch it. He, he could have. I mean, BBC <laughs> employees could, but he tended not to. He tended to work from the script <laughs> instead. So in this case, he's going from his own memory of two years prior and what he would have changed about it. And I think what he would have changed is Troughton, you know, spouting off different ad-libs, such as, uh... Well, what are we going to do now? Keep it confused. Feed it with useless information. I wonder if I have a television set handy. Mm. And it's a brilliant yeah. ad-lib. It's fantastic. Yeah. But it is not in the original script. Mm. And it's certainly not here. The doctor is trying to explain to Joe who he is. She quotes a line from the Beatles. And it's not in the uh, it's not in the novelization. Hmm. What what she quote? Um, let's see. Perry says, "I am he, and he is me." We are all together, Goo Goo Kichu. What? It's a song by the Beatles. Uh, how does it go? Oh, please be quiet. <laughs> Which is brilliant. And I am the, the second doctor. Yes, and yeah. the second doctor offers to play it on his recorder. <laughs> it's a lovely little scene, but again, it's not there. And so I'm wondering if you felt that this is. Uh, do you feel like you missed something by not getting those jokes? Or do you feel like you got something of the Patrick Troughton doctor as you remember him being? Totally get that. I mean, the the fact that he has the recorder and he that is a big part of the plot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you, you get that feeling of him. He's still a little bit of a goofball that I enjoyed reading the books. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and talking about their, their interactions, it's like, of course they don't get along. The doctor always wants to be right. Right. So when he's fighting with himself, like, duh. Like, yeah, of course, he, he's, he's 
eventually he's going to work with himself. But, uh, but yeah, no, I, I love the scenes with the recorder. I love the fact that they refer to him as Dr. Two, which is Accurate. a horrible <laughs> pun E, but yeah, it, it's just, yeah, it's enjoyable. It still was fun. Okay. Awesome. Dix did a good job making sure you always knew which doctor was speaking, which is no small feat when you're purely looking at the page. Yeah. You can't see the actor. So I developed a whole conspiracy theory about the flute because when it first appears, for which doctor says and corrects whoever called it a flute and says, no, it's a recorder. And then they continue to call it a flute so often that I actually thought that the Troughton doctor was going to turn out to be some sort of imposter and some sort of fake that Omega was generating somehow oh, wow. to confuse the Pertwee doctor. And I was incorrect. But, but they, he made such a big deal the, at the beginning about it's not a flute, it's, it's a recorder. A and then flute was said over and over and over again that I thought it was leading up to a, some kind of twist. And again, I think that's the camera script. Because in the televised story, and I've got Whovians in the room so they can um, correct me if I'm wrong, but he calls it a recorder for the rest of the story. And here, it's only the recorder the first time, then flute, 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 and then, Mm -hmm. I mean, it is important to the plot at the end when they use it to blow everything up, but Mm -hmm. I expected that to sort of land back home with, oh no, it's a recorder, bitch, or something, (laughs) and then it explodes. (laughs) Sort of more of a a Vin Diesel kind of moment. (laughs) It's a recorder, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) That's brilliant. So I read Troughton 35 to 75% convinced it wasn't going to actually turn out to be the Troughton doctor. It was going to be Troughton portraying some other character who was faking him. And we might only see real Troughton at the beginning and the end. Okay. Looking back on it now, would you say it is an accurate depiction of the Troughton you've seen in the books? Remember, I don't really feel Troughton. I feel like his... Humor, no, I feel his humor is very hard to translate to the page, and that very few writers came close to even succeeding. That is true. And I think Pertwee's a lot easier to his humor is a lot easier to to, to write. Yeah, Yeah, his mannerism comes across better. So I'm not crazy about him, but the about the second Doctor almost exclusively because he hasn't been done justice on the page. Mm -hmm. True. Not, not the actor. Strangely yeah. enough, it's one of the stronger second Doctor stories, at least in my opinion, mm-hmm. that I actually prefer watching Trout and the Three Doctors to almost any of the stories he's actually Which I could, I could very easily imagine seeing it, but reading it, his, it was so aggressively zany yeah. that I, I kind of found it over-the-top frenetic. Yeah. I mean, he does go a bit Robin Williams-ish from time to time. But the, you have to have that sort of contrast between he yeah. and the yeah. third Doctor because yeah. there is a load of contrast there. How many episodes was this? Four. Much shorter than what we've been reading from yes. Darren Sticks. And there's a reason for that. <laughs> there's a reason for that. There's a whole lot of running around in this one. Driving around? Um, and driving around. And stunt driving? It takes from the time that the jellies capture the Doctor and that other Doctor guy... And Joe, from that time to the time that they get to Omega's room, whatever it is, it's about 10 minutes. It feels that way. It's a long trek. Hey, it's Tony from the future again. Just letting you know that I reviewed the episode after we did this podcast just to see how bad that delay was. And it's even worse than I thought. They get captured, the Dr. Joe and Tyler, around minute 16 or 17 in episode 2. And they don't actually get to Omega's Lair until episode 3. So it's much, much worse than even we in thought. Fact, so actually, there you um, go. The third Doctor does a kind of a uh, flower trick to show how ephemeral the world is, and later Joe uses those flower petals to make her way out. Hmm. That's not in the... Yeah, that would be a nice moment. Yeah, yeah that would have been a good touch but to have. The script. But... Is it in the script, uh, Joe trying to fire an enormous rifle and the recoil <laughs> knocking her out? Because well, I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it's something that they try to have Katie Manning do, but knowing that she you know, sometimes can be a little prone to accidents. I, it could have happened i doubt it though then her 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 successor is not going to be that uh bad at rifles (laughs) so that's something to look forward to it's going to be a while before we get there how about the first doctor or what there is of him (laughs) 
you don't get very much of him, so it's hard to to feel anything from him. It's almost like since he only is a projection on a screen, he's he seems kind of flat. Yeah, yeah, you can get that. I, I thought it worked well that he was scolding them or contemptuous the entire time. I thought <laughs> I thought his personality came through very well. Yeah, but there weren't there weren't moments where he was. You know, I'm so used to reading the Hartnell Doctor, really contemplating the situations he's in and formulating a way to get out of them or at least, you know, we don't, taking steps. And we don't really get that. No. Um, we don't so. get his, yeah, his perspective. We just get his acerbic wit deployed against others. But our point of view is the person receiving the zingers right. rather than the doctor, exactly. <laughs> rather than Hartnell Doctor uh, composing the zingers. Yeah, yeah. He, he almost seemed like another member of uh, the council or, or like the chancellor or the president yeah. in, in a way. He kind of does, except for the whole thing of, you know, using British slang, like calling Joe a gal. Which I thought was interesting. Yeah. yeah, it took me a minute. I thought he was talking about the jellies, but he, it's G E F. It's the yeah. gal. Yeah, and I don't think Cardinal ever spoke that way, to be honest. But yeah, there's so little of him, and that's one of the mm-hmm. regrets I have about this that they couldn't have retained one of the previous drafts of the story so that we could see the more active First Doctor in it because mm-hmm. that would just be brilliant. Or someone doing a rewrite of it that would be glorious but unfortunately we never got that and as we already know Dix would never have done it anyway I actually did think he maybe this is just mind transformed by modern television he might in some way die in some sacrifice self-sacrificing way which doesn't make sense within the story and that the two previous ones aren't really dead or alive in the classic sense but I thought he might save the day a little bit more aggressively towards the end and And we do get that tease of him being sent into the black hole but no he's just being projected into the black hole most literally and and bringing bringing that thought up about uh, first doctor possibly dying there's there's a part in there where they talk about the third doctor dying and they say that the second doctor would blink out of existence yeah. and I'm like but if How he's the work? third iteration why would the second one go away yeah that doesn't make any sense either I, I, I thought that was odd myself See, I thought almost none of the story made any sense but that was made part of the story eh, any matter physics don't apply here nothing makes any sense why hurt your head trying to figure it out I <laughs> I actually appreciated that as sort of a spackling over right. all the plot holes and the, the nonsense yeah, of the physics. Such a bad spackle. Well, yeah. but that's we've, we've seen Dicks do better spackles than that. Newspaper. <laughs> oh my. Yeah. So that, but I mean, that's one minor thing in there mm-hmm. that was like, hmm. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, we have talked previously about Dicks at this point, kind of doing odd things with the Brigadier's characterization. It's not so much Dick's doing it, obviously. It's the original writers, but... Well, the last story, know. he seemed stupid in a way that is, yeah. was not what we were looking for. Yeah, it, that's what I meant to point out, that we've seen the Brigadier be pig-headed before and kind of lose intelligence over the course of the character, and this is probably his lowest point. Because I thought it was still better than the last one that we read. Oh, really? Oh, with the time on stream. Yeah. He, the, the previous one, he was like the atheist in the Marvel Universe who hangs out with Thor and then doesn't believe in the gods or something. He just didn't believe that all this wackiness could possibly be going on when he's seen all kinds of crazy stuff happen before. Here, I actually thought he was more in character mm-hmm. in that he's he's doing his damned and, it's, and we know it's not going to work. And by now, he should know he's not going to work. But it, yeah. it did work as a more conventional military person who has seen a lot of things. Mm-hmm. trying to use this training in a situation that, in which everyone is in over their heads. Yeah. It's kind of by the numbers, but it wasn't off personality like the last one. Right. But you still have moments, though, where he, he doesn't believe that there's a, another iteration of the Doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whenever they get transported to the antimatter universe, whatever, he's, he's like disbelieves that. He still thinks, you know... Where what what's going on? And it's like <laughs> you understand that these things can happen. <laughs> just just go with it. Yeah. Which I thought Benton did very well. That was a, that was yes. nice yeah, characterization. Like oh yeah, I'm not surprised by anything. So what are we doing today? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, in fact, it's kind of hard to imagine that 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 that's, that character's beats would have been Jamie's beats, to be honest, because mm-hmm. if anything, Ben comes off a little smarter than Jamie would have been. Yes. Because, as you know, none of us on the panel... Well, that's not true. I was about to say, none of us on the panel are fans of Jamie, but I think it's this Allison who... I just... Had a big boner I, against Allison. I just thought he was always portrayed as the noble savage and just really stupid, so... Overall, yeah. Yeah, but exactly. He was endearing. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Let's tackle the loud beast in the room. Let's talk about Omega. What do we think of this as... A villain. It's kind of he. Even though he has all of this power and ability, he he again he didn't seem. I never really felt like anybody was truly in danger. Mm-hmm. Even when the Time Lords are like the universe is ending and all of our power is being sucked away, it's like, but is it? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, it is. But it's like it. It never felt like oh shit, this is really, something bad is going down. Right. And then kind of his the explanation of, of why he is making this happen, why he's doing this, mm-hmm. is like, you're a child. Yeah. That he just feels <laughs> underappreciated. Yeah, yeah, it's like, oh, I should have done more credit for this. Um, yeah. But then yeah. I guess in the end, whenever he, when they realize, like, you can't escape here, you have, there is no more of you to leave here, all that's left is your will. There's, there's like a little bit of a kind of sadness towards that happening. Right. But also it's like, you're, you're a jerk. Like, I don't, I don't care. <laughs> well, the, inter- the interesting thing about that scene, and I do have a story about it, is um, Stephen Thorne, before he goes back into the hammy acting, actually has this moment of despairing wailing. And it is just heartbreaking. Until he starts overacting again, and then you're like, okay, thank you, Stephen Thorne. He didn't overact the wailing? Uh, no, no. The <laughs> he whale, pulled it back to wail. He, he did, but, but, but because Barry Letts told him to. What happened was Barry Letts was giving a tour of some school children um, to the BBC studios, and they were recording that scene at the time they were in the gallery, and it freaked the kids out so badly. <laughs> Got their like, money's worth. We take it down a notch, <laughs> thanks. So that's the calm down hmm. version. Yeah, I'll have to drop the clip in for our listeners at home so they can hear what I'm talking about, even though they know exactly what we're talking about. That's interesting because I got more of like a flat, almost emotionless, mm-hmm. except for the one or two sort of outbursts uh, feeling from it. So that, that would have been a very different performance. As a matter of fact, spoiler alert, Omega returns later. Hmm. We will see him again, I know. <laughs> well, what a terrible job of destroying him they did. Is it yeah, earlier in so. his timeline? No. 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 Okay. It, it's later. <laughs> it's later when John Nathan Turner decides, hey, let's throw everything from the original series back into the series. Hey, Omega hasn't been around in a while. It's like because he died. But they do bring him back. And at that point, the, the uh, performance is very different. And oddly enough, done by the actor who played Stuart in The Time Monster. Okay. Strangely enough. Hmm. Because that actor has really decent acting chops. He has an incredible range, so he can do the goofy lab assistant in 1972, but be this suffering Time Lord in 1980. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you when. You'll just have to guess it. But yeah, it's a very different performance than, uh, than is later given. I like Terrence Dick's little framing devices where he does a little prelude and epilogue with a very minor character who doesn't have that much screen time in the original. So we opened with mm-hmm. Arthur Hollis, and then we closed with him going home, and his oh, wife mm-hmm. says, oh, I just knew you were out sort of rambling around. And there's some like vague misogyny about where he talks about all the women in yeah. her family talk too much. <laughs> but other than that, it's actually quite sweet that it starts off with a guy who's bird-watching, but very smart and prescient in understanding that the birds are somehow disturbed by something which I thought was very nice. They make him almost a sort of natural man, sort of a little more in touch with nature than the others around him, and go back to him in the end, and he senses that everything is back to the way it was before. I thought that was a very nice frame. Well, you remember how we said that early Dix tends to do that. It tends to give characters background, (laughs) even the secondary characters. Hollis definitely works out better that way because... 
you really don't get that much about Hollis on screen, and the actor, well, the character doesn't seem all that intelligent. The actor who plays him doesn't seem that intelligent. He gets a lot more development here. But the idea that the world is saved is tied to this person we've seen very briefly that, yes, the doctor is always going to make it through, but he specifically saved the world, and this guy we and met at the beginning. And that, that was, I thought that was, that was nice. Who ends up then at home in time for dinner, which is, yeah, it, it does have that sweet quality. With the unbearable burden of his wife speaking out loud. Oh, How exactly. does he survive? Well, it wouldn't be early <laughs> Doctor Who if he didn't have a little bit of himself. It wouldn't be Terrence Dix it without just a Dix. little bit of... Just yeah. a smidge. I, Just a flavor, a little aioli of massaging. When I had my Remembering Terrence Dix panel earlier today um, that I moderated, I said something about my only disappointment in Terrence Dix was the fact that he had the Doctor be slightly homophobic in the book Endgame. And I got, like, frowns from people in the audience. I'm like, did you not read it? <laughs> He's, it's, it, it is set during World War II. Or actually, I think it's set earlier. And it's about one of the uh, British spies who ended up going over to Russia. And the spy, in, in, in this case, happened to be gay. And Dix has several points at which the doctor is, is feeling disgust internally uh, at this guy. And it's like, really? Hmm. And the very next book has Alan Turing in it. Hmm. And he's all over him. And he loves him. And hmm. he even says at one point, Alan's sexuality has nothing to do with anything. And it's like, there's the doctor. Hmm. You would no. think that Terrence Dix writing that character. And he wrote both of those. Ter those no, are both no, Terrence Dix? Okay. He didn't write the yeah. second one. That would have been even more confusing. Hmm. But, yeah, it may just be that the Paul McGann doctor was going through that, you know, amnesia at that hmm. point and forgot that he actually likes gay hmm. people rather than not. I don't know. But it is just very strange to have that. So, yeah, like we said before, he's woke, but he's woke for 1973, which is a very different form of woke. What else did we want to talk about? Predicted a lot of things were going to happen that didn't, because Joe is so happy and relieved to see the doctor and says, everything will be okay now. I thought, oh, no, Joe is going to die. <laughs> and so Joe not hooking up with Benton and not dying pleased me. <laughs> she almost gets to do a lot... I was okay enough with the comedy of the giant rifle recoiling that I was okay with her. <laughs> she didn't just kind of like scream and faint. I was okay with the fact they took her out of the fight. By she just her eyes were bigger than her shoulder in terms of controlling the weapon. But how does that work? She's. It was all okay. It, it yeah. evened out to not not great, not bad. True, true. Um, I talk, talking about the the Trump doctor and and perfect doctor interacting. Uh, the bit with the Martian crown. And how he tricks him oh, yes. into being double-headed coin yeah. into being the one that goes through, and and inevitably, of course, they both had to go through. Um, but just that that bit of foreshadowing at the beginning, just yes. being like, second doctor's trying to get out of going through, but then it's like, <laughs> no, you you can't even temporarily you can't get out of it. You, yeah. It's an inevitability. Um, yeah, he ends to. up being very brave when he and Benton are the only ones together. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't act it around the third Doctor for some reason. Well, and remember one of my other non-enjoyments of the Troughton Doctor is he's written as enjoying a bit of the old genocide every now and then. And <laughs> doesn't ever mind wiping out his enemies or a little disappointed if he fails to kill one. So I thought we were just right back in character for that here. We're at the end. It's like, oh, we've obliterated right. them. Let's have lunch. I'm not being sarcastic. It no, seemed no. exactly right for Troughton Doctor. No, I, I got that. Yeah. Because in Chapter 8, uh, Dix describes the second Doctor as usually mild. I was like, have they never seen him around Ice Warrior? Oh, my God. Yep. He's not mild around Ice Warriors. Yep. Like, you know, Shiva incarnate. And, which is really weird for somebody uh, like the uh, second Doctor. It's really quite strange. I, oh, Time Lords. Time Lords and the fact that he can now travel again. What do we think? We knew it was going to happen. Did we know it was going to happen this soon? Um, it felt like it was time for it. Mm -hmm. I expected it to happen much sooner. There have been several times I thought it was going to happen. Mm -hmm. But my rate of success, as you can tell, was very low. My rate of predictive <laughs> success was very low for this book. Well, we, we'd had a number of stories where the Time Lords, you know, made the Doctor travel to other times and places and now it's like all right now some another time lord that isn't you know a good time lord 
is making him do it. So now they're like, well, I guess if he's doing it, then yeah. okay. Well, he does literally save the whole planet. Yeah, I know. But he's done that several times. Well, right. Well, not well, not. It was never enough for the poor. Yeah, okay, with saving Earth wasn't enough for the parole board, but I guess so, like, saving <laughs> saving Gallifrey was. Okay. So now you get That's your driver's true. license back. <laughs> well, but I no, actually, I do like that. Is where I was confused with the last story where the Time Lords had sent the Doctor back to help and save a planet right. because they had not in the previous novelizations we've read shown any interest whatsoever in anything altruistic like that. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So I thought this is more consistent with what we've seen so far that they're pretty self-serving. Yeah. And if he has saved them, if he saved Gallifrey, then they'll 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 ease the doctor's sentence or they'll let it come to a conclusion. Not because he's done good, but because he's done something that worked out well for them. Um, I think a, we're, I always read it as we're supposed to be afraid of the Time Lords in, no, in recent novels. To, to some degree, yeah. Except here. It's the first time we've heard them say something along the lines of we're pledged to protect others. Yes, and I uh, thought it felt felt quite flat. I thought we were supposed to read it as not... Not genuine? Yes. It's sort of self-deception. Well, not that they're seen as evil, but before this we've seen them as very cold-blooded. That's true. And indifferent yeah. to our fate. They, they do tend to shift. They're going to shift mm-hmm. even more by the time we get to mm-hmm. the Tom Baker years when we see them again. By that point, they're, they might as well be a completely different species because everything looks different. The way mm-hmm. uh, You still have a president and a chancellor, yes, mm-hmm. but they seem to have switched so that the president is above the chancellor. Here it seems like the chancellor is above the president. For some I was reason. confused, but then it turned out to not matter at all. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. yeah, for some reason the nomenclature gets really weird. Ah, let's see. What else can we talk about? We can talk about the fact that there are plenty of lines that aren't in the um, original, but unless you've seen the original, it doesn't make a lot of sense to do so. It does have one of the best endings, though. This paragraph from uh, chapter 11, I should have taken this to the panel with me earlier because this is is Dixian prose at its best. As he looked at Joe's sad little figure, the doctor realized something else. Now that the ability to take off in the TARDIS was once more within his power, he wasn't sure he wanted to go. He knew he'd miss his friends, Joe, the brigadier, Sergeant Benton, and his life as unit scientific advisor. For the first time, in many years of wandering, he'd found something that could be called a home, and he didn't want to give it up. Not completely, that is. One or two little trips from time to time, of course. Yeah, it's a lovely little paragraph, yeah. and it, it, that moment goes by in a blip. In the televised version. But it encapsulates everything that the, the third Doctor has come to be and the reason why he doesn't just immediately take off. His successor, not going to be quite so fa- fond of Earth. so <laughs> Or staying there, I should say. Had enough of it. Well, no, not so much. It's a very different character, for one thing. But it shows that Dix understands the significance of this arc, that yes. the Doctor has a regular gig, a place that he lives, a car that he works on, things that he yeah. hasn't had before, and doesn't really like at first, but okay. becomes well, attached to. That forced exile has made him appreciate it even more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, he of course, had a, a fondness for Earth, um, but having to be there for that period of time has, has made him, you know, feel mm-hmm. feel like home. He would have instead of just whipping around time and space. And, he would have had a fondness for people like Joe and Benton before because they are young and curious. He would have had no use whatsoever for the brigadier. But <laughs> since he's had to spend time with him, he's actually attached to him too. Which yeah, that's took away from that. That's true. Now let me ask you a question before we go on to the other things that we do on this program, and that is what do you think was the most impressive sequence in the book? In the book, or like what do we in imagine being most impressive on the well, screen? If they had had the budget to do it, what do you think would have been the most impressive sequence for them to, uh, in the book, for the story? I would have thought the blob splitting into twos, fours, or eights, you know, various powers of two, and sort of hovering and whatnot. But yes. I knew that whatever budget and technology they had in 1973, it wasn't going to be good. Yeah, doesn't happen. So Okay, so there's that. Okay. Yeah. Um, how about you? Um, <laughs> I think just some of some of the interiors of the, the citadel, as I will I refer to it, mm-hmm. the pillar of flame. Yeah. Um, I would imagine that could be very kind of mesmerizing and uh, overwhelmingly just powerful and 
beautiful but scary. It is a little platform with a steam jet. <laughs> <laughs> And when they pass into the singularity, you can hear their footsteps as they come out the other side. Not even electric heat pump. It's just steam. The guy shoveling coal. Yeah, in my mind's eye, I I really imagine this. this And speaking of the mind's eye, when he goes into Omega's mind to fight him, Mm -hmm. it's a wrestling match with probably just throwing him over his shoulders a couple times and then getting pinned as normally happens. It, it is... Pit fight rarely works. No. No. It works much better on the page. So much works better on the page mm. here. Alright, what else do we want to say? Anything else we want to say before we uh, go on to Goodreads? Line here. The Brigadier found he had a lump in his throat. Wonderful chap. Both of them, he said. I thought that was actually a very good Brigadier yes. Petter. And... and he's going to say it again. A similar <laughs> line than the Five Doctors. So there's definitely that. There's a continuity through there. Anything else? No comments? No. Significantly more compact than I expected. More streamlined story, shorter, mm-hmm. apparently fewer episodes. I thought this was actually going to be kind of a bloated fish, and it was not as self... Well, I thought it was going to be very self-indulgent with oh. internal references, and it wasn't. I thought there was a nice sense of restraint, and maybe that's just because Hartnell wasn't up to more. Yeah, I think that's exactly why. And it's a shame that he wasn't, because we would have gotten probably more story, that's for sure. Um, there's the bit um, where the Doctor is going back to the unit headquarters uh, as he's kind of going to escape. And they describe that Time Lords have a homing instinct <laughs> for the TARDIS, which yeah. I... We've never had reference to that, really. It just—it comes and goes. Yeah, but I just <laughs> sometimes he'll lay, lie down and it'll go away. Seasonable. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the seasons. It's like having um, your uh, your elbow hurt when it's winter time. Yeah, but I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, thing to bring up. Just the idea that he felt like a connection to it. That is also Dick's papering over a big old plot hole. <laughs> the fact that. Naturally. The, uh, the Scooby gang get in Bessie and they drive mm-hmm. to unit headquarters and somehow the doctor, the two doctors get out of, um, get out of uh, Omega's domain and manage to get there at the same time. Which is why we get that lovely bit where they're all sitting in the unit headquarters and eating mm-hmm. because it's meant to paper over that plot hole. Mm-hmm. They shouldn't be getting there at the same time. Gotcha. Yeah. Is this so, from the Boer War? No, no, it's 1940. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's all dicks. It's just brilliant, mm. I think. So shall we do the Goodreads thing? Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's do it. All right, as we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers, then follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our new Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is a very high 3.81. Really? Obviously, brevity is what people like. Nicholas White, speaking of brevity, did not rate this, but he says... This is one of the novelizations that is so much better than the original that the TV version is a real disappointment. The stupid music, oh, we didn't even talk about the music, the lousy special effects, the clumsy resolution of the story all either absent or fixed on the printed page. It is not one of the great novelizations, but it is nonetheless very enjoyable. Michael gives it three stars and says this is one of the few Target novels I didn't read growing up, but listening to it now as an audiobook and realizing this is a version of the story that a generation of Who fans grew up with, I can see why it's so beloved. Dick's adaptation of the 10th anniversary story adds a few elements that the TV story just can't compete with, including a purple sky in Omega's world, gel guards that multiply at will, and a few other points. Given the limitless palette of the imagination, I can see why Dix chose to do this, and it makes some of the sequences seem far more alien and exciting than we eventually see on screen. Dix also tightens that narrative a bit, eliminating at least one corridor running sequence in part two, and not dwelling on a protracted farewell when everyone gets to head back to Earth when the doctors remain behind in Omega's singularity. In short, the book works the book works well. And it's a fun little read or listen that has a lot to offer. The only thing that the television version has over this is you can see and hear Troughton's performance. 
and how easily he upstages everyone else in the story. That's for damn true. And finally, Jaya Jaya Prakesh, I'm sorry, Jaya Prakesh Satamurthy gives it four stars, saying, I reread this recently. I think these novelizations are my favorite form of the franchise. Say, try saying that five times fast. They cover the vintage era, which I like better than the slick current stuff. But they allow me to create my own far more effective special effects in my mind's eye. This is a pretty gripping story with its glimpses in time load history and the multiple doctors. I can't say anything deeper than that. I revert to being 12, mentally at least, <laughs> when I read these books. And that can be a most rewarding experience. All right, so out of five stars, Allison, what did you give it? So Jaya's comment brings up something that I liked about the story, wherein it's kind of common assignment to ask teenagers to write a letter to their future self mm-hmm. or to ask an adult and to sort of write a letter to your child self. And I like the idea of the three doctors as sort of an analogy of being ashamed of who you used to be <laughs> or thinking that the younger you would disapprove of who you are now and then actually making peace with that. Mm. So um, overall, I go 2.5, which remember, I'm the mean one and the low one, <laughs> which is actually <laughs> pretty high for me. Um, I, I, there, There's a lot of weird, wonky stuff with the plot that I was fine just letting wash over me, and I thought that some of the character moments in it made it actually stand out, even though I now know we lost a lot of the, the humor. Mm-hmm. What survived, actually, I thought made for a very touching arc overall. Okay. Right, done. Uh, I, I agree with a lot of what Allison said. Uh, since I'm a little kinder with my ratings, um, <laughs> I would go like 3.5, 3.75 with this. Um, it definitely is not the most exciting um, story that we've read, but it gets the job done. And yeah, there are really some good character moments. Um, again, being able to to imagine this in my own mind's eye and kind of see it uh, play out um, as opposed to having the the televised version, you know, rack my brain. Seared in your memory. Um, yeah, it just, I, I could see it being very beautiful um, in a dark way, yeah. which is something I've always been drawn to. So, um, yeah, I would, I would say 3.5 with this. Um, there were some plot holes and some wonky, wonky things going on there, um, some things that really didn't pan out, I guess, and, and, and wrap up nicely in a pretty bow. But mm-hmm. that's okay. It was it was still a fun read. Okay, quick fun read. Quick read. <laughs> Which is <laughs> your catchphrase. As, as, as I say. I haven't heard um, of that in a while. Yeah. But, yeah, it was enjoyable. Okay. And for myself, I'll make a brief 3.5. Yeah, because I can't forgive Dix for not including those jokes. That being said, I don't think he remembered, he remembered they were there. So... <laughs> If they're not Dick's jokes, do they really even exist? Well, exactly. That's true, because we big plenty of Dick's jokes here. But, yeah, I don't think it was... I don't think he actually remembered them being there, and so they're, they're not, so you can't exactly give him that. He does improve it. It is a better story on the page, except for missing those jokes. A nice amalgam of the two would have been great, but we didn't get that, so there we go. All right, so thank you guys. Mm-hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. We are going on a brief hiatus, mainly because we've been reading nothing but Doctor Who books for more than two years now, and we want to get caught up on Game of Thrones. That's a joke, of course. I have a lot of catching up to do. I know, me too. When we return in the second week of March 2020, however, we'll be discussing a Dick's novelization of a Robert Holmes classic, Carnival of Monsters. Before we go into our ending spiel... Let's announce the winners of our Patreon giveaway, and we'll announce the winners of the in-room giveaway after we finish recording. So let's find out who won these prizes. For the Doctor Who Annual 1972... Actually, I'm going to do this way. That's me shaking it together. Dalton, pick one. Hans. Hans. Hans Lex. Very good. Ooh, Hans. That's the first one. Yay. Okay. So what is Hans getting? He is getting that um, facsimile Doctor Who annual. The 1972 annual. Now we need two. We need two out of this one for the facsimile t-shirts. All right. Like the one that we're wearing right now. (laughs) Kind of like a real t-shirt, but it's a picture of a t-shirt that will go to VJP. Okay, that's Video Junkyard Podcast. Okay. 
And Do the they all one? have to share the, the no, shirt? No, I'm only making one. Gotcha. <laughs> and Rick? And Rick, who has okay. already left the room. Okay, that's fine. And that's right. for the last three giveaways, we have three books, and they will be in this order, and go ahead and... You have to do everything. I have to do everything no, now. I was okay. just sharing the love. That's you know. all right. That's all right. <laughs> all right. That one we can't give away because they've already gotten something. This one we can give away because ah, and the Doctor Who Collectors podcast has also left, but he probably already has that. But I'm going to give it to him anyway. <laughs> the second one is going to be the Doctor and the Pescatons cassette tape that goes to Toby Bengelsdorf. And the last one is going to be Jay Barry, and he gets the Doctor Who official quiz book. All right, so big money, big money. All right, and those of you who are still here in the room will get your goodies as soon as I finish my ending spiel. Thank you, everyone. And in the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club, <laughs> Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast on Word of No Spaces. If you want to buy a copy of the book or DVD of The Three Doctors from Amazon, there is a link in our episode description for you to follow, and we'll actually get a few pennies on every dollar you spend. Yay! You can also visit our newly pristine subreddit at reddit.com forward slash BC. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC. Uh, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, email us at DWTargetBC at gmail.com. Our new theme by Aaron S. is available on his YouTube channel at tinyurl.com forward slash Y32B8F55, along with many, many others. Give him a follow and a thumbs up. Thank you very much for traveling. Oh, shit. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs> Two years of doing this, and I've never fucked that up. Thank you very much for listening, and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Eight. <laughs> it's been 79 years, Tony. It's been 79 years. Okay. Fine. Time has Fine. no meaning in right. Omega's, Omega's lair. <laughs> well, that's good. interesting.